Would you please turn to John chapter 5? John chapter 5. Now here in John chapter 5, there was, uh, says here in verse 1, there's a feast of the Jews. Jesus went to Jerusalem. There was a pool there called Bethesda. And a lot of uh, people with various types of maladies, um, impotent, meaning like lame or blind, halt, uh, just all kinds of stuff, you know. They'd come and sit by the pool and wait for the moving of the water. Bible says that an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, troubled the waters. Whoever was first after the troubling of the water stepped in and was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, folks, I still don't understand that. I mean, I just don't. That that one's not yet clear to me. But nevertheless, there was a man there who had an infirmity. Thirty and eight years. Man, that's a long time. Jesus saw him and he knew that he had been there for a long time. Well, how do you know that? Okay, this pool of Bethesda was a well-known location. It was in Jerusalem. Jesus has been to Jerusalem many times throughout his life. No doubt he has seen this man there for years. Well... Jesus, verse 6, knew the man that had been there, and he looks at him and says, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. (laughs) Why not ask the guy, how did you get healed? You've been there 38 years. You, You were there when I was a little kid. I remember you when I was five years old. And daddy would give you alms. I mean, how did you get healed? No, they're just all worked up over the fact that he's carrying his bed. And there's another part of this story that I don't understand yet. And that is, why did Jesus speak only to that man? Why not the others? I don't yet know. Maybe someday I will. Hopefully someday I will. I say by faith someday I will. But nevertheless, the Jews, they get all upset about this. And they say, you know, what are you doing? Well, verse 11, he answered, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? Not what man is it that got you cured? What man told you to pick up your bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. The reason there was a multitude was because it was the time of a feast. Well, Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, 
because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now, we could really go off on a tangent with this one about when you get born again and you're a child of God and the non-deified equality and so on and so forth. But what I find interesting is that they say that Jesus broke the Sabbath. How? I'm not Jewish, and I'm not an expert on Jewish law. But how did he break the Sabbath? All he did was talk to the guy and say, pick up your bed. I mean, the guy was healed. Well, nevertheless, they get all mad. They, they seek to kill him. Verse 19, then answered Jesus and said unto them. Now, he's speaking to all these people that are really mad at him. Verily, verily, I say, well, also people that were there that maybe weren't mad at him, more curious than anything else. There's a lot of people there. So Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation." I can of my own self do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I received not the testimony from man, but these things I say, that you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and you were all willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me, Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he has sent him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another 
and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Boy, this right here, that verse, that is still happening today. I mean, it is happening big time today. You know, seeking the honor of men. Anyway, that's not a tangent we're going off on. But he says, verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Now, this is really interesting. Because, you know, Jesus, he's talking to them. And you've got the religious leaders there as well as whoever else was in the crowd that day. And he says, search the scriptures. Well, first off, in verse 38, he says, you don't have God's word abiding in you. It's just not there. Search the scriptures. Because you think. Just the fact that God gave the law and the prophets to the Jews guarantees you eternal life. But you guys are missing it because they are testifying of me and you won't come to me. And then he says, do you think or do do not think, verse 45, that I will accuse you to the father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses. And whom ye trust. What is he talking about that Moses is accusing them? Well, he says, if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? So what Jesus is telling them is search the scriptures because they testify of me. Then he says, you guys, you think you know more than what you really do because Moses wrote about me. He testified of me. All right. This brings up a question. How did Jesus know so much about the law and the prophets? How did he know? How how did he know so much about the scriptures? Somebody could say, well, come on, Brother Martin. I mean, the Son of God, you know? I mean, the Word made flesh. Of course he knew. But in Philippians, it makes it very clear that he laid aside his deity power to come here. So how do you know all this? Turn over to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And I'm going to show you how he knew all of this. It wasn't just because he was, you know, God in the flesh. The Christ, the Messiah. In Luke chapter 3, in verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. And then it goes through and it gives us um, lineage of, of Joseph's family. But in verse 23, it states that Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. That's kind of King Jamesy, but what it means is Jesus began his ministry at age 30. Now, in chapter 4, look at verse 16. 
after he's come out of the wilderness with the face off with the devil and all this other. Verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. You see this? He goes back home when he comes out of the wilderness. Nazareth is home. That's where he was raised. He wasn't raised in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. And it says he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up for to read. But notice it says this was his custom. His custom. Now what that means is this. When he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, everybody there knew him. It wasn't like they gave him a visitor's card and asked him to fill it out. Can we put you on our mailing list? They knew him. And that's one of the reasons, well, we're not going to read all of this, but it's one of the reasons why the people got so mad. Because for years, here's Jesus, son of Joseph, carpenter's son, the carpenter himself. And we see him here every Sabbath day. This is nothing new. And the fact that they let him stand up to read means that over the years, he had done this more than once. In fact, they may have let him stand up and read a lot. In fact, maybe more than anybody else. And you might wonder, well, how are you drawing that conclusion? I'll show you. In Luke chapter 2, turn over there, turn back. Luke chapter 2. Now, in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, it says, this is talking about Jesus' birth. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her, Mary's, purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, <clears throat> says there was a man in Jerusalem whose name is Simeon, and he's there for this circumcision. And then you, you keep reading this, and then there was a prophetess, Anna. She was there. And they both saw Jesus, and it was revealed to them that he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. Well, you go to verse 39, and when they, Mary and Joseph, had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord, meaning the circumcision, the purification, you know, the offering, all that that we just read about, it says they, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Now look here, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace of God, was upon him. So now we see what was happening in Nazareth from the time that Jesus was this basically a newborn baby up until what we're getting ready to read here for in, in a moment. But it says that he grew, waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He is growing in his walk with God. Are you are you understanding this? Now, we pick this story up, we, we jump ahead a few years, 
to verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Now, now look at this. They went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Remember where the Pool of the Bethesda was? And that man was there 38 years? All right, that man had been at that pool Jesus' entire life. Every time Jesus went to Jerusalem, if he walked by the Pool of Bethesda, there that man was, along with whoever else. So it wasn't like Jesus had never seen that guy before. But we continue here. It says, And when he, verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. So, in verse 41, we see that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Well, what's happened is, in between verse 39 and verse 42, basically 12 years have passed. Because in verse 39, he's still, you know, this little bitty baby, this newborn. And it says in verse 40, he's growing. So verse 40 is kind of describing what's going on in between newborn and verse 42. The custom was that Jesus and his parents went to Jerusalem every year. So as, as the, the years are progressing, first they're carrying him and, you know, however it was, they transported a baby from point A to point B. But then, you know, he's, he's getting older and now he's able to walk. Well, he's 12 years old, 12 years old. And in verse 43, it says, when they had fulfilled the days, the days of the Passover feast, as they returned, returned where? They're headed back to Nazareth. The child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it, but they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and their acquaintance. Now, what that means is, supposing him to have been in the company, when these trips were made, the people like in Nazareth or other villages and cities, they would go in a group. You know, their safety in numbers. So they would go in this group, and the families usually would travel together as well. So when it says that uh, they supposed that he was in the company, and they, they go a day's journey, and they start looking for him. They thought he had been with family members or friends. Walking with them. Now, why would they think that? Because he's done this before. I mean, if this was the first time that he suddenly had disappeared for a day's journey, they would have been looking for him while they're walking. But they're used to him traveling. You know, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to walk with cousin John, who later became John the Baptist. I'm going to be walking with them. I'm going to be walking, whatever. Well, anyway... It says, verse 45, when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. So it's a day's journey out, now it's a day's journey back. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, the experts in the law, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. In other words, here are the experts. It'd be like a 12-year-old sitting in a room with, you know, Einstein and Newton and all these others and having a conversation with them about physics. A 12-year-old. And Einstein and the whole bunch, they're shocked at this kid's knowledge. That's what's going on here. They were astonished at his understanding and answers. 
And when they, Mary and Joseph, saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Now look, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So what's happened is this. They're in Nazareth every Sabbath day. You know, here comes the Joseph family and uh, there's Mary and Joseph and Jesus and other kids were later born into the family. They're going up in the synagogue. Everybody knows them. And they know Jesus. If at age 12, he is astonishing the experts in Jerusalem, don't you think some of those people back in Nazareth were also kind of astonished in the conversations they might have with him about the law? That's why later on it says, you know, here he is age 30, as his custom was. He stood up to read. So it wasn't like, you know, well, let's give Jesus a chance. No, there was something about him and they knew it. Now, when he stood up to read all these years, as who knows how old he was when he started reading, I suspect it could have been as young as age 12. And I'll I'll let you know here why in just a few minutes. Can you imagine... Okay, think of it like this. Anytime there is a guest preacher here in our church, or anytime that I have gone someplace as a guest minister, there are always people in the congregation who want to speak to the guest speaker. You think people do that now and they never did it before? I can guarantee you, (laughs) when Jesus was age 12 in Jerusalem, and he's having these conversations with the experts, you don't think those experts began to talk to, to other priests and other Pharisees? Who is that 12-year-old kid from Nazareth? You know, Abinadab, you're from Nazareth. Who is this guy? I mean, th- he's 12 years old. Did you hear him? You don't think word began to spread? Yeah, I'll guarantee you it did. But there in Nazareth, word would have gotten out some way, somehow. Something different about Jesus. And so he stands up and he reads... And he's age 30. He's still, no doubt, if anybody were to go to him, say, Jesus, I've got a question for you. You know, I heard some interesting things happen back when you were 12 years old there in Jerusalem. What don't you guys talk about? Isn't that common? People just want to, you know, tell me about, you know, you, Jesus. And uh, here he is. He stands up and he reads. But he... It says here in verse 52, increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Okay. What was going on that he, well, as it says here in verse 40, he grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And in verse 52, increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. What's going on? I mean, was this only because he's the son of God or is there more to it? Yeah, there's more to it. Let me share. We get an inkling 
as to what happened in Jewish life. And you don't have to turn to this, I'll just read it to you. In Genesis 18, verse 19, God is talking about Abraham. And God says, For I know him, Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Now this is interesting because this is before the law and the prophets. And so God is saying, I know what Abraham's going to do. He is going to teach his children to honor and respect the Lord. And whatever it was that God spoke to Abraham, what we see written in Scripture, beyond what was written in Scripture, in other words, things that weren't fully documented and what have you, I mean, Abraham, as he would pass these things on, and he would tell his children, listen, this is what the Lord has done for us. This is what the Lord said. Here's how it happened. Here's how, you know, I mean, all these things he would have told his, you know, Abraham, then there was Isaac and Jacob, everything that he would have told his family. And God says, I know this is what he's going to do so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Now, this is interesting because what God is saying is the reason I was able to move in Abraham's life was because he stayed on the path I set before him. If he had strayed off of it, I wouldn't be able to do or bring upon Abraham that which I've spoken of him. So, okay, this is important for us because just you read something in Scripture, there's a promise. Just because God has made a promise doesn't mean that promise is going to come pass, to pass in your life. You get off into a world of sin, you, you get away from God's standards, and you still think all of His promises are going to come to pass? No. And we have a precedent right here. Well, anyway, in Proverbs 22.6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, let me give you a little background here as far as the, uh, the way Jewish children were taught. Back in you know, what we would call the Bible times, the primary purpose of education among the Jews was the learning of and obedience to the law of God. That was the primary purpose of education. Boy, have we seen a role reversal in our education system today. That's not the primary purpose anymore. The primary purpose anymore is everything but the Word of God and to keep it. Now, that was again, that was the primary purpose. And back when, uh, well, back when Jewish, uh, when they, when the Jews first became a nation uh, and they were teaching, it was basically Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, all right? But that was the primary purpose of education. The secondary purpose was to teach about the practical aspects of everyday life, uh, math, science, and for the boys, to help them discover a trade. And for the girls, (laughs) this is interesting, for the girls, they were taught how to care for the house, the application of dietary laws, and how to be a good wife. It kind of sounds like home ec. How many of you remember home ec? When, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like that. Yeah. But nevertheless, 
you know, granted, there was a little bit of unfairness there. The girls weren't taught the same way the boys were, but the boys, the secondary purpose of education was to teach them, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And, you know, help them discover a trade. But that was secondary. What, what do we see today? I mean, among Christian homes. Kid, you gotta go to school. You gotta get an education so you can have a good job and a good career and provide for your family. You ever heard that before? You ever said that before? Okay, you know what? That's out of order. Totally out of order. It's not, I didn't say it was wrong. I said it's out of order. First and foremost is the education of the child according to the Word of God. That has to be primary. But we in the body of Christ today, that's not how we were taught. And so that's not how we're teaching the next generation. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of parents have problems with their kids. They are not teaching those children literally from birth the Word of God. Now, let me continue with this. The home... Now, back during, you know, Bible days, the home was considered the first, the primary, and the most effective agency in the education process. And parents were considered the first, primary, and most effective teachers of their children. Now, what was the primary responsibility of education? The Word of God. The home, more than anything else, and the parents more than anyone else. What do we have now? And I'm talking in the body of Christ here. Take them to church. Let them learn at church. Now, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be is, you train those kids the Word of God at home, church just adds to it. Church just flows with it. That's the way it's supposed to be. Most parents don't want to be bothered. But look... I'm stomping on my own toes, okay? So, you know, don't, I'm not up here telling you that I did everything right. I didn't understand it this way back then. But I do now. And the whole aspect of home is supposed to be more important than the school. Christian parents don't get that nowadays. Nowadays, it's, you know, send them to school and even, even Christian schools. Even Christian school. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to send them, we're going to send little Johnny to Christian school. Well, why are you going to do that? So he's not out there in that worldly environment. What? Have any of you ever done a lot of research on Christian schools? Did you know there are drugs in Christian schools? Did you know that? Did you know there is premarital sex at Christian schools among the students? Can you believe it? Oh, glory to God. How is that possible? Well, how do you think it's possible? Part of it has to do with the fact things are wrong at home. And the wrong, the, the uneducated from the Word of God aspect is carried right on into the Christian school. Now, the home was considered first the priority. And uh, the parents, number one, as far as the teachers, concerning the Word now. Now, the, the parents may not know, may, may not have known as much about the math or the science or what have you, but and generally, if dad had a trade, the son was raised up to try and, you know, maybe follow after the dad in that trade. But when it came to the priests and then later on the synagogue teachers, they were all secondary to the parents. <laughs> you don't see that today. 
Man, parents, they, they, they don't, they're not following this pattern at home and then what do they want to do? Pastor, can we bring Johnny in for counseling? Well, really, I think the parents are the ones that probably need the counseling before little Johnny. Tell me what you're doing at home. Well, we don't let him watch this and we don't let him watch that. We restrict his internet time and we restrict his phone time. And okay, yeah, that's all great, wonderful, hallelujah, glory to God, the angels are dancing. But what are you doing with the word? What do you mean? What word? <laughs> I rest my case. Johnny's not the one that needs the priority counseling. It's mom and dad. Because you guys are messing up. Big time. Now, l- let me just pass something along to you as far as um, I mentioned synagogue teachers. The synagogue actually didn't come into existence until after the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity. Because once they were uh, taken away into that captivity, they didn't have access to the temple. So, this, um, this, it wasn't called a synagogue at the time, but people began gathering together in groups, like in homes, to uh, read the Torah, to talk about the Torah, and to uh, have times of prayer. Well, when the Jews were released to go back into Israel, they brought with them the synagogue concept. And synagogues began to be established in basically the cities and villages you know, all over Jerusalem. Well, the, the modern example of that is uh, where you're sitting right now, you know, the local church. So this is a variation of that theme of the synagogue. Now, along with that, what happened, it began, the synagogue began to morph into not just the place where the people went on the Sabbath for, um, uh, you know, well, for church, but it also became a place of education, what we today would call a Christian school held in a church. And the, um, the whole aspect of, the, uh, of that education, it became very critical relative to what the parents were doing at home, and then also to help further the child's education, not simply in the Word of God, but also as far as the reading, the writing, and the arithmetic, all of that. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, God gave these instructions to Moses, and he passed them on to the Jewish people. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. You know, we're talking all day long. This is what the parents are supposed to be doing. The home is supposed to be word-centered. Now, I'm going to say something. Don't anybody get mad until you hear me out. The, the home was supposed to be word-centered more than family-centered. Because if the home was word-centered, then the family is in order. Follow that? So he says, um, you know, when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when, you, when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine head, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. Now, part of what they're talking about here is referred to as a phylactery. Now, a phylactery was like a little box, and there would be scripture in this little box. And it would, uh, 
you could bind it on your, your hand, and then also it would sometimes you'd put it kind of like a headband, but it would be right there on your forehead, you know, like between your eyes, like he's talking here. Now, with that in mind, um, most Jewish boys, the parents would begin their education, I mean, really kind of driving it home at age three by teaching them the Hebrew alphabet. Now, there are a lot of parents today, they don't do that with kids until they're like maybe four or five years old to get them ready for preschool. <laughs> You're waiting kind of late. Look, kids are smarter than what you th- It's weird how the older parents get, they forget how smart children are. And they just assume they're stupid. Well, no, they're a whole lot smarter than what you think. But nevertheless, um, by age three, the parents, especially the father, was really working hard teaching the uh, the children, especially the Jewish boys, the Hebrew alphabet. And the father also had the obligation to teach the children the law by word and by example. You know, uh, for example, the child might see the father taking the phylactery and, you know, putting it up on his head. The kid would say, what, what is that, Daddy? And he says, okay, this is the law of God. And he might even open it and take it out and read it to the child. Repeat this after me. Thou shalt love the Lord with all... And then the kid repeats. That's how they would begin training them. And he said, well, Daddy, why do you have it on your head? Well, because this represents that I am supposed to memorize the Word of God. I'm supposed to have it always in my mind so I can think on it throughout the day. So it was teaching not simply by verbal instruction, but also by example. He would set this forth. And the um, one of the primary ways of imparting the knowledge of the Word of God to the children wasn't just the example, but sometimes the parents might even act out certain things. Because, you know, children enjoy that kind of stuff. And they would maybe act out certain stories from the Bible to help the child remember this. And then they'd be talking with the child. For example, um, might uh, the parent might say something like, what did God tell Noah? Well, then the child is supposed to answer the question. So I'm just giving you like real brief examples of how this went on in the home. Well, the boys usually began formal schooling at uh, the synagogue was referred to as the house of the book. And the boys usually started this, started being taken to the synagogue at the age of five. And he would spend at least half a day there, six days a week, for at least five years, and he'd be studying in the synagogue, not just the uh, reading, writing, arithmetic, but also the Word of God. It would go into more detail. The parents would bring their son to the synagogue, the house of the book, at daybreak, and come back and pick the child up at midday. So the kid's there for several hours, you know, throughout the day. Now, the teacher in the synagogue was usually referred to as an attendant. It wasn't always a priest. It would have been uh, somebody else that would help with this teaching. And the primary aim of this education in the synagogue, once again, was religious. The Old Testament was the primary subject matter for the instruction. They didn't have all these textbooks like what we have today. I'm not saying it's wrong to have textbooks. But what I'm saying is the focus, number one, was the Word of God. So you have the parents at home. The focus, number one, is the Word of God. Then when they send the kid to the house of the book, the focus, number one, was the Word of God. The other things were taught too, but the focus was the Word of God. Well, 
memorization was was a, a huge thing. In fact, uh, the the memorization, well, the boys by age 12 were supposed to have the entire Torah memorized, first five books of the law, by age 12. <laughs> the, all of it, I mean, us, you know, we might not, we, we're good if we have one verse memorized out of the whole Torah. <laughs> they were supposed to have the whole thing memorized. Now, one of the things that, this is interesting, Psalm 119, verse 103. Um, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And that's an interesting verse. He's like, okay, yeah, very poetic, David. You did a good job there. But there's more to it than that. Because David is actually writing about what happened when he was in school. When these boys would be in school, they would all have a slate. Well, nowadays they have like a laptop computer. But they would have a slate. And, you know, this slate was used for writing and so on and so forth. But sometimes what the uh, the teacher would do is take the slate from a boy and he would take honey and write a, a little bit of scripture on it. Then he would maybe quote from that portion of scripture. Like, let's just use the term verse. It wasn't all written in, in verse and chapter back then, okay? But for this conversation, you know, he would quote from like Genesis chapter 1 verse, you know, 18. And he, the, the teacher would maybe quote the first half of that. And then, okay, what's the rest of it? And then little Johnny would have to quote the second half. And if he got it right, then the teacher would hand the slate to the student and the student got to lick the honey off the slate. Well, see, this is part of what David was talking about. In fact, there was another custom that many times uh, what the, the uh, instructors would do, they just put some honey on the slates and pass them out to the students and say, okay, lick the honey off the slate. And the students would lick the honey because that would be like you know, giving the kids ice cream today. And then the teacher would say, may the word of God be unto you as sweet as that honey is to your tongue. So, when David wrote this, he's actually referring to part of the educational process when he was a boy. Now, when the son reached the age of 12, he was supposed to have had the entire Torah memorized. And the Jews believed that when the boy reached age 12, his education in the Torah was complete enough to help him know the law and keep it. And at that point, you know, we talk about bar mitzvahs and things like that. Well, this is a little different because at that point, the boy was then referred to as a son of the law. Now remember, this would have happened to Jesus. When the boy was age 12, that's when this ceremony took place. Because he was referred to as a son of the law. And in this special, call it a graduation ceremony, whatever you want, however you want to term it, the, um, the boy's father would take phylacteries and fasten one on the boy's arm and the other on his forehead. And this would be, uh, he would kind of remind the son, okay, remember, you know, the, uh, the word is supposed to be in your mind and meditate on it day and night and so forth. And when you... When you cross your arms in times of prayer, you're pressing the word into your heart. You're supposed to hide it into your heart. And so, so anyway, this was a process that the sons went through. And remember, this is what happened with Jesus. 
He went through all this process. When he turned age 12, he was then considered a son of the law. He would have had his, you know, however they did the ceremony. But whoever was in charge of that synagogue knew 12-year-old Jesus. They knew how he responded in class. They knew how much honey Jesus had been able to lick off of his slate. (laughs) And not only that, but then Jesus had the phylacteries. I mean, all of this, he wasn't exempt from it. And he's referred to as a son of the law. So now when he goes into Jerusalem, he may have gone in, like what we read there in Luke chapter 2, he may have gone to Jerusalem with the phylactery on his arm and on his head. I mean, that was a, you know, a, a thing of pride. You know, like you're on the football team, you get your letter jacket, and you're going to wear that letter jacket even if it's 90 degrees outside because, you know, know, I was on the varsity team. All right, well, now here's Jesus. I don't know that he did wear his phylacteries into Jerusalem. He may have. But what I do know is this. It's not a coincidence that at age 12, all this happened. And he's now considered a son of the law. During the conference, if he did not have his phylacteries, he was not wearing them. When he's sitting down with these doctors, these experts in the law, it is inevitable one of them must have looked at him and said, Son, how old are you? I'm 12 years old, so you're a son of the law. But he knew more than what any other son of the law would have known. And he was astounding them. They had an expectation that a 12-year-old is going to have the entire Torah memorized. That was the expectation. Jesus was exceeding those expectations to the point these experts were shocked. They could not believe what they were hearing from him. And the questions he was asking revealed an understanding of the law and the prophets beyond anything they'd ever heard before. I can just try to imagine when Jesus had (laughs) headed back off to Nazareth, I I wouldn't doubt one bit if some of those experts he was talking to for three days, four days, five, would have been thinking, Mary, Joseph, why don't you just leave him here? We'll take care of him. There's something unique about this. Remember the story of Samuel? Remember that? His mama took him and left him with Eli. I have no doubt some of those guys were thinking, I hope he comes back. We need to hear, well, who is, we need to, yeah, that kid, uh uh-huh. That boy's got a future. <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> he got a future. <laughs> now, look over in First Peter. First Peter chapter two. There's a whole lot more about the education system of uh, you know the, the Jewish habits, behaviors, practices, and so forth that I did not even look up. It's all really interesting. But remember in Acts chapter two. The day of Pentecost. All the Jews were there for the feast of Pentecost. And we know what happened. Cloven tongues like as a fire. Peter preaches. Thousands get born again. Filled the Holy Spirit. Baptized in water. And then it says they continued daily in the apostles' doctrine. Now, we read that and think, how could they do that? What in the world? I mean, every day. That was not unheard of. Because remember, the Jewish boys went to school six days a week. Six days a week. So, these folks were extremely accustomed to sitting down and hearing the Word of God. 
Why? Because that is how they had been raised. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. As, since, as, as newborn babes. What newborn babes? As newborn babes in Christ. Newborn children of God. Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, what he could have written in here for symbolism, he could have said, desire the sincere honey of the word. But the point I'm making is, to the Jews, when they heard this, it made perfect sense to them, because that's how they were raised. They were told, word, word, word. This has to be the focus of your life. In 2 Timothy... Chapter 2. Or no, I'm sorry. Yeah, Second Timothy chapter 2. And in verse 15 it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. To the Jews hearing that, that was really nothing new. That's how they had been raised. To us today, the modern Christians, we don't know what that means. Study to show yourself approved. Well, I go to church on Sunday. Yeah. And and sometimes I even take my Bible. Well, th- th- what God is trying to get across here is this. The way it was done in Jewish culture was not supposed to stop just because Christianity came into existence. This training is supposed to continue. What took place in Jewish culture in the homes relative to the parents and the children... That's supposed to be going on today. The problem is, how many parents know enough about the Word of God to be able to teach anything to the children? I mean, they really don't know it the way they should. Boy, you're going to learn the Ten Commandments. Repeat them after me. Thou shalt not, and thou shalt, and so forth. Okay, good start. But you're supposed to be teaching these kids the New Testament when they are young, you're supposed to be teaching it to them before they even accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They should be having the Word sown into them, sown into them, sown into them, starting when they are young. You know, you're supposed to be like the, the Hebrews. They, they would teach the alphabet to the kids starting at age three. All right, you know what? Yeah, teach the alphabet. But you're supposed to be putting the Word in them. And I'm telling you right now, This is one of the reasons why a lot of Christian homes are so messed up. It's because the parents don't know much about the Word of God and they sure aren't trying to figure it out enough to teach the kids. Now, in Hebrews chapter 5, turn over there. Hebrews chapter 5. In verse 12 it says, For when the time you ought to be teachers... You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection or full maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands 
and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will be due if God permit. In other words, if God says, okay, they're ready to go beyond all these things. But you know what? The subjects that are identified here are points of major contention within many churches. There's no way you can go beyond that. Now, here's what I'm getting at in all of this. In the Old Testament, there are examples, and I've just shared with you about you know, the school system, the teaching of the Jewish boys and girls and all that other. Okay, that is a pattern that is supposed to exist today, not just in the home, but in the church as well. Here's what I mean. It's not just the natural children that are, are supposed to be trained up in the way they should go. It's God's spiritual children as well. And the reason, <laughs> the reason that we have so much error, so much compromise, so much sin, so much turmoil in the church, you know, the body of Christ, is because the children, I'm talking to spiritual children, have not been properly trained up. And so now we have this mess on our hands. That has to end. And it has to end. We, we cannot speak for any other church. But here, it has to end. We have got to reverse this trend in order for this revival to be sustained. We've got to be ready for when the newborn babes are coming in. Or maybe those that <laughs> they got born again 30 years ago, but they're still like newborn babes. When they come in, we've got to be ready to, uh, let me say it like this, we've got to be like that father to them. To give this word to them. To teach them. To, to bring them along. You know, put the honey on the slate, if you will. We have to do this. Because if you look at what's happening in the body of Christ now, this emphasis on, let's call it discipleship, this emphasis, it really hasn't been there. Oh, you have a lot of churches that are very strong. A lot of Baptist churches, very strong on Sunday school. Very strong on Christian education. But the thing is, if the Christian education isn't lining up with the Word of God, then what good are you doing? Plus, too many churches. When it comes to teaching the children in church, I'm talking like the physical, physical, you know, natural children. You know, Sunday school and all this other, it's just a bunch of, you know, Noah and the ark. You know, Jonah and the whale. The walls of Jericho. Look, sooner or later you gotta go beyond this stuff. You've gotta open the New Testament and teach these kids what's in the Word of God. It has to be sown in them. Because God said, train them up the way they should go, and when they get old they won't depart from it. Now I know that in part what that means is they'll never be able to get it out of them from the inside, but why do you think when you read in the New Testament and so forth, and you see that these Jews were all, they were so much law, 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 law on the prophets. They didn't deviate. Well, they created their own stuff. They perverted, they twisted, but law, law. Why was that? Because it was drilled into them from infancy on up. That was their life. Even when the Pharisees later on added a whole lot of traditions, that was still their life. That was the emphasis. And that's not the way it is today. 
See, this is one of the reasons why that I have emphasized so much here over the last, I don't know, few months, few years, that folks, you've got to know the Word. I'm not an expert, but I'm learning more. You've got to get into the Word. You have to understand these things. That's why I've, I've uh, suggested, you know, listen to the sermons. Follow along in Scripture. Take notes as you go. Pray in the Spirit as you do it. The Holy Ghost will teach you. He will educate you. Guys, if you're not doing this, what's going on in your own walk with God? I'm not calling you a backslider. I'm not saying you're back out there in sin. But what I'm asking is, what's really going on? What's really happening? You know, um, one of the things that the Lord impressed upon me a long time ago, one of the greatest treasures in the body of Christ is the retired people, the retired adults. Because they have the potential to spend so much time in the Word of God. Because when you're punching that, that time clock and you're having to work overtime or whatever, let's face it, your time is limited. I understand that. I mean, you can still do something, but once a person's retired and, and no longer having to, you know, Monday through Friday, you know, put into 40 hours and all that to get the paycheck and so forth, you know, when you've got all that time that's loosened up, my goodness, you ought to be digging into the Word big time. You ought to be studying to show yourself approved. You, you ought to be getting, I mean, you ought to be at a place now to where you're qualified, scripturally qualified, to be called an elder. And and yet, if that's not going on, look, I know that's not going on across the board, like in churches all throughout. You know, it's just amazing to me when I hear Christians talking about retirement, almost like they're released from any responsibility to anything, except their their flower bed or the golf course. You know what? I don't, I don't know who that would apply to here or if it applies to anybody here. But to any of you retired folks hearing this, this is on you, man. And you need to understand, if you've been wasting the last few years of your retirement, not digging in and getting ready to help disciple and help teach, start now. Start now. Don't, don't give me excuses. Well, I don't understand the word. That's what learning is all about. That's why you do this, is so you can learn. Take advantage of this. You know, you're, you are, the, the retirement folks, it's an untapped generation for the kingdom. You're not too old. And I've heard that, well, I'm too old to learn something new. You know what? You have the mind of Christ. <laughs> you can learn. But folks, we've got to reverse this trend, and we've got to be ready to train God's children. And it starts with us as individuals getting ourselves trained so that we can be ready to do this training. All of this is a part of preparation for revival. Praise the Lord.